morning to the book of Acts chapter 4. On Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Acts together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and if you just get their attention, they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. That would be our desire. We're going to pick things up in chapter 4, but I'd like us to go a little bit to the left and... I'd like to read a, a short passage out of both chapters uh, 2 and 3 in addition to chapter 4. So chapter 2, verse 22, Paul, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And then chapter 3, verse 17, Peter speaking at the uh, temple area following the healing of the lame man, verse 17 Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And finally, chapter 4, verse 27. <clears throat> For truly against your holy servant Jesus, and here is the Christians praying uh, to God after Peter and John were released from the threats of the Jewish religious leaders. They pray to the Lord, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these, these little couplets uh, in chapter 2 and 3 and 4. And we thank you for the wonderful truth and the great truth that is bound up in each one of them. And Lord, we pray for a miracle, wonderful, wonderful miracle of your Spirit, just the way that you do. And we ask that the great truth that is found in these verses would be lifted off of the printed page and that it would be inserted into our hearts and our mind and into our spirit, Lord, and into a living, working place in our Christian life to affect all of our thinking, to affect all of our doing, all of our perspectives about life as it's lived all around us. And we pray and ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The world that we're living in today is candidly, I think, in the minds of anyone who's paying attention, a very, very scary place. There are the wars that dominate almost all of the Middle East. There are the armed conflicts that are going on, not just nation against nation, but civil wars occurring within nations that are literally filling and, and occurring all around the world. ISIS continues its growth in terms of its influence and its power and with the sense that 
And, and as they're growing in power, there's the recognition that even ultimately, if some power in the world rises up and cuts off the head of their authority and their power, that ultimately all it will do is, is just serve for some new group, perhaps even worse than them, to rise up and take their place. Terrorism, the threat of terrorism, fills the entire world. Religious persecution is running rampant. It fills the world as well. And everywhere you look, it seems like the bad guys are gaining ground and the good guys are on the defensive. We look at the world economy, and it's still in need of very significant artificial support now all of these years after the beginning of the Great Recession in 2007, and all of it is a testimony to the uh, fragility of the world economy. Within our own country, only 28% of Americans feel that our nation is going in the right direction, according to the latest polls by Rasmussen. Gallup poll repeated, reported just this last week that 72% of Americans say moral values are getting worse, uh, and on and on and on we could go with a list like this. And I think that given the fluidity of the world and the apparent instability and uncertainty surrounding the world that we're in the middle of every day, that we are witnessing every single day, that it would be very easy, even for a Christian, even for a strong Christian, to conclude that the world is spinning out of control. And thus, it's at times like this that we desperately need to be reminded that it is not. And in studying the book of Acts, we are at least in part endeavoring to look at a Christianity that was being experienced and expressed by that early church that was not only able to withstand all of the considerable persecution and opposition that came up against it, but that even in the midst of all of the difficulties and the challenges of the world, both secular and religious, that it was facing, that this church and this Christianity thrived and ultimately prevailed so that later on in the book of Acts, even the enemies of the gospel and of Christ are forced to confess that these Christians have turned the whole world upside down for God. And in these first four chapters of Acts, I notice in Peter's preaching and in the prayers of the early church a significant truth that clearly served as an anchor in their lives. And that truth that is repeated over and over again in chapters 2 and then in 3 and chapter 4 is their confidence in the sovereignty of God and in the providence of God, even when things are, weren't always physically and outwardly uh, obvious to them at the moment. There's a, that was the world that they were in, and yet this was the confidence that they had uh, concerning God. Based upon their circumstances, I think it would have been very, very easy for these early disciples to have concluded that their situation was in danger of spinning out of control, for simply being used by God to heal a lame man and then preach the gospel to a crowd that had assembled as a result, resulting in 5,000 people being saved. They've now attracted the attention, the unwanted attention, by the way, 
of the very hostile Jewish religious community and establishment in Jerusalem at the time, the very religious establishment that played a very significant part in the crucifixion of Jesus. And as if all of this weren't bad enough, Peter and John had left the presence of these powerful Jewish religious leaders with the threats of them still ringing in their ears that if they did not stop preaching in the name of Jesus and speaking the name of Jesus, there would be very severe consequences. In verse 21, when it declares that they further threatened Peter and John, that phrase further uh, threatened there, it carries the idea of a pounding, the sound of uh, ocean waves hitting the beach, the crashing of waves. In other words, when they were standing before these religious leaders, the threats that were meted out against them were meted out forcefully and powerfully uh, against Peter and John. These threats had been made known. And what Peter, John, and the rest of the disciples fell back on at that time was the reassurance of God's sovereignty and of His providence. It was a backstop in their life. So it raises the question, what does the sovereignty and the providence of God mean? Uh, What did it mean to them? And what is it supposed to mean to us in our Christian lives, in the age in which God has called us to worship Him and to live for Him and to serve Him? I want to think it's important to know that Entire books have been written in an attempt to define the sovereignty of God and the providence of God, and you could spend almost all of your life reading these books and exploring these great themes, and I have no doubt that the time would be very, very well spent. But this morning, I want to keep things very, very simple and with no intention of being exhaustive with the themes, but just accurate insofar as they apply to a word of encouragement this morning that's on my heart. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign, and the word sovereign means principle. It means chief. It means supreme. Norm Geisler speaks of the sovereignty of God and puts it this way. Theologically, sovereignty refers to God's complete control of all things. God is the creator of all things, and as the creator of all things, He is infinitely greater than His creation. There are only two things in all of the universe. There is the Creator and there is the creation. There is God and there is the creation. And God is the Creator, and as the Creator, He is infinitely greater than His creation. But more than that, all of creation rightly belongs to Him. And as Creator, He has absolute authority to rule and to control His creation. David wrote about it in Psalm 24, verse 1, and he put it this way, The earth is the Lord's, and all of its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. And so sovereignty is something that God is. He is almighty. He is not partially mighty. He is almighty. And as a result, nothing or no one can oppose Him and His purposes in any way with the hope of being successful. The gap between the Creator and the creation, the gap between God and everything else is infinite in every way. 
whether it has to do with knowledge or wisdom or power. There is an infinite gap between God and His creation. God is almighty, but God's sovereignty is also purposeful, which brings us then to His providence. And the providence of God is the outworking of God's sovereignty. The providence of God is God's sovereignty in action. That is, God not only created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, but He is then also actively involved with that creation. And supremely, He is guiding all of His creation to a meaningful end, to His God-appointed end as is described in Revelation chapter 21. And allow me to read you a portion of Revelation chapter 21. This is where it all leads to. This is where it all ends. And John wrote by the Spirit of God, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There will be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And He said to me, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. And he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death. The providence of God assures us that God is very actively involved in the world, that He is working this world and its history toward His God-appointed end. I like to encapsulate the sovereignty of God and the providence of God, for better or for worse, that God rules over all and that He overrules all for His purposes. He rules over all, that is His sovereignty. He overrules all, that is His providence, for His purposes. Now, in the considerable fallenness of this world, the sovereignty of God and the providence of God is intended to produce a confidence in the life of every Christian, that this world is very much under God's control. It is very much in control. He is working everything to His glorious end in His way and in His time, and that we are to rest in that and we can rest in that. And the early church did. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, again the passage we read as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, you might look at it once again. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, Peter preached, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, 
as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So here we have what man did, what they did. They took hold of Jesus with lawless hands, hands that were not in subjection to the law of God nor into the subjection of the laws of man, and they crucified him, and they put him to death. But what they did, though they were completely responsible for their wrongdoing, we are also told that they did by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. God knew that they would do what they did in His foreknowledge, but He allowed it because it served His purpose. And He ruled over all of it, and He overruled all of it for His purposes. By taking the most heinous crime in human history, the rejection and the crucifixion of the very Son of God and God the Son by sinful man, crucified by His own creation, and making it the means then by which He provides us with salvation and the forgiveness of sins in the only way that He could in the death and sacrifice of His Son. In preaching to the multitude at the temple in Jerusalem following the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate, again in Acts chapter 3 verse 17, Peter preached, yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as also did your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And Peter takes and he confronts this very, very religious audience with a significant part that they played in, along with their leaders, in the suffering and the death of Jesus. But he also informed that it, them that in doing what they had done, though fully responsible for their actions and their sin, that all they had actually accomplished was to produce the fulfillment of what God had foretold through the prophets. And they, in what they had done to Jesus, had merely done what God had known that they would do all along, and far from their actions against Jesus, uh, disqualifying Him as the Messiah, they only served to cement His qualifications based upon the surest thing in the world, which is the Word of God. And again, God ruled over all, and He overruled all for His purposes. And then here in chapter 4, in their prayer to God, in verse 27, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand, God, and your purpose determined before to be done. And here the early church declared to God with one voice that though the immense power of secular Rome joined with the immense religious power of the religious Jews, and they united together Jew and Gentile, representing the Jew and Gentiles of the whole world to commit this horrible crime against innocence and beauty and truth and the crucifying of Jesus, that in doing all of this, all that they had accomplished was what God had determined long before that they would do. And Peter later wrote of it in his first epistle when he declared in chapter 1, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers, 
but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And then here it is. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth. Not merely at Calvary much later, but before the foundations of the world. Because this plan of salvation and every element of it that yet reaches out into the new heavens and the new earth had been put into place by God not only long before Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, but long before the creation even of the heavens and the earth. And God, in His foreknowledge, had known what Adam and Eve would do, and He provided for it long before it ever occurred. God the Father, when He stood in that Garden of Eden, He wasn't surprised by the fall. And as He looked over the wreckage of the fall of Adam and Eve in that garden, He didn't wring His hands and wonder, what a shock, what am I going to do now? But knowing full well that the fall would occur, and knowing full well that it would occur, Why did He proceed anyway? Why would He put us, mankind, through all of the fallenness that has followed for thousands of years? Why would He put Himself, His Son, the Holy Spirit, the entirety of the Godhead through all that has followed that fall if He knew ahead of time that it would result in a train wreck that it did. I'll tell you, heaven must be a wonderful place. It must be worth all of the pain and the heartache that occurs between here and there. And it is. Paul wrote to the church at Rome, and he said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And the word reckoning is an interesting word that he uses there in the original language. It means to calculate. It means to take into account. It's intended to produce a picture within our mind. The picture is of the scales that is held in the hands of Lady Justice, who is portrayed in courtrooms all around the United States. And there she has this ancient version of the scale, not an electronic version, an ancient uh, uh, version of it, where they would take and pile a certain amount of whatever on one side of the scale and then a comparable amount on the other side in order for it to weigh out. And the Apostle Paul looks at these, this and he says, if you were to take all of the suffering that any of us will ever endure in the course of this lifetime and put it on one side of the scale. That suffering is not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us as Christians. You can take all of that suffering and put it on one side and not will, only will it not weigh out evenly with what the glory that shall be revealed, what will be our future in heaven. He said it's not even worthy to be compared one with the other. There is no comparison between the two. And someone might ask themselves, well, who made the Apostle Paul a big expert on heaven? The simple answer is that God did. And Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, 
And he said, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And then speaking of himself, he said, I know a man in Christ. He kept it quiet for 14 years. I know a man in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body I don't know or whether out of the body I don't know, God knows. And such a one was cut up, caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. He said, I'm not even going to try and describe what I saw in my visitation to heaven, whether by vision or whether God took me physically up into there. I I can't be sure myself, he said. I won't even attempt to describe what I saw He said, it won't even be lawful for me to attempt in any human language to describe what it is that I heard. I would only do an injustice to what it is that I've seen and what I've heard. Of our coming eternity as Christians, we're told by Paul, again as he writes to the church at Ephesus, chapter 2, he said, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is so sure, God speaks of it in the past tense. And for what reason? That verse 7, the first word is a reason word. In the passage, the word that he's raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, I will readily confess is there's a lot that I don't understand about God's ways. And there's a lot that I don't understand about His sovereignty and I don't understand about His providence. But I don't have a problem with mystery because anytime you have the finite, me, in you, in a relationship with the infinite, God, then that means you and I are going to have to get used to mystery. As the old saying goes, a God that's small enough to understand is not big enough to worship, and it's true. Because if he is small enough for me to understand his fullness, his ways, his providence, his sovereignty, if I can wrap my mind around God in his entirety, then that makes him smaller than my mind, and thus it makes him smaller than me. And why would I worship someone or something that is smaller than me? It would be illogical, and it would be useless The fact of the matter is that concerning any subject that we would like to engage God on, and Job tried to, by the way, (laughs) after we have hit the limit of our understanding, his knowledge of the subject goes infinitely beyond it. And we use a phrase today to describe the point at which something disappears or ceases to exist, and we refer to that as the vanishing point. When I was a young boy... 
the Bonneville salt flats were made famous in the state of Utah because that was where uh, people that were like to do this with motor vehicles would set new land speed records and they would have these cars and pretty soon they became virtually jets on four wheels and they would set a new land speed record and for some reason it was of interest to me I'd always take note when a new a new record was set but go out to the Bonneville salt flats in Utah this long long flat area covering about 30,000 acres of flatness. You stand there on a summer day and you've got a friend and you ask him with a great pole and a large orange flag at the top of that pole, and you say to him, just start to walk out into the distance. And he starts to walk out into the distance and you see the sun and, and all and the, the radiating off of the heat, off of the earth and all of that. And you're watching him walk and walk and walk and walk and walk. And as he walks, there will come a point at which that man and that flag will disappear before your eye. One step you will see him. One step more, it's as if he doesn't exist. He disappears. And you drive a stake into the ground at that particular point, and that is your vanishing point. And though the Bonneville salt flats stretch far beyond the limitations of your eyesight, that is your vanishing point. And what is true of the human eye is also true of the human mind. You take any subject of your choosing and you carry your understanding out as far as you can and you plant a stake there and then realize that God's understanding of that same subject goes on infinitely beyond that. But God gives us a reassurance and a precious promise in the midst of all of this mystery that's associated with the relationship between the finite and the infinite. The famous passage in Isaiah chapter 55, God declares concerning His providence and His sovereignty and what He knows that we don't know. He said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper the thing for which I sent it. And then we think, well, what about something in the same vein from the New Testament? And I'll give you another famous verse. Why are these verses that reassure us concerning the providence and the sovereignty and the ways of God, why do they end up becoming the, some of the most famous verses in the Bible that we at least know where they are in the Bible, if not committing them to memory, except that they're meant to mean something to God's people through all of the ages, and indeed they do. The New Testament verse that speaks of the same thing is in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And God assures us that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to His purposes. And God never says that all things are good in this life. They are not all good in this life. But what we are to know in the midst of it is that His promises to actively use His sovereignty and His providence to work 
all things, and all things are all things, not most things, but that He will work all things together for our, our good, every single thing. And for God to work all things together for good in the life of every single one of His children in the world means that He is active and massively active for good in the world, speaking of His providence. Those early chapters of the book of Acts reveal to us that the sovereignty and the providence of God, what it meant to the early church. And as I read these early chapters of the book of Acts, it struck me that Peter and and John and the early church couldn't seem to bring the subject up enough three times in four chapters, and especially when the circumstances in life become hard and confusing, it's meant, it meant something to them to be able to settle back into these truths. Number one, the knowledge that God is in control. And number two, that God is wonderfully and actively at work, not only in the world on that grand scale, but also in our lives individually as Christians as well. And so here you sit this morning. And what was true of the early church is also true for you and all of the considerable challenges that you face in life and all of the fallenness of this world. God is sovereign. Your heavenly Father is in control of all things, including your life. And number two, he is wonderfully and actively at work in your life, guiding every single thing according to his purpose and his will, which he declares in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, to be a will that is good and acceptable and perfect. And as we allow those two great truths to settle upon our hearts and upon our minds this morning, They will provide us with a confidence and with a comfort that every child of God is in need of in the considerable fallenness of the world around us and the considerable fallenness that we are faced with yet inside of us each and every day. He rules over all, and He overrules all in order to keep your life moving forward toward His God-appointed end. And what an end it is, whatever it may look like to you at the moment. And I could build a case for the sovereignty and the providence of God at work, not just on a universal scale or a worldwide scale or a national scale, but build it just as easily from the Scriptures on, on an individual level. And we could speak the rest of the morning and the rest of the afternoon at length concerning Paul and Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Joseph and David. But the single greatest encouragement to God's sovereignty and providence is found in Jesus himself. For if God could take the unspeakable horror and injustice of Calvary and overwhelm that scene, to make it serve His eternal purposes, then He can and will do so in every situation in our lives. The world is not out of control, and neither are our lives, whatever they may look like at any given moment or no matter how we feel. 
they are in the sovereign and providential hands of our Heavenly Father. And maybe one or two of us needed to hear that today. I remember being a young boy, eight or nine years old. I remember watching a variety show on television with my family. To watch television with my family at that age was to huddle around a 13-inch black and white television in the living room, all six of us. On this variety show that was playing, I think it was Louis, Louis Armstrong or someone like him sang the song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. And I remember as a young boy, long before I'd given any kind of consideration to God, and certainly long before I ever gave my heart and my life to God, I remember listening to that man sing that song on that television, and I remember being very affected by the song, and especially the first two stanzas of it. He's got the whole world in his hands. 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 And then the second stanza goes on to say, he's got the little bitty, little bitty baby in his hands. He's got the little bitty baby in his hands. He's got the little bitty baby in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. And I don't know why that they did. Those, that song impacted me in the way that it did, except that life for me as an eight- or a nine-year-old boy was to be in the middle of something that was very, very uncertain and a very, very frightening section of my childhood and certainly for my brothers and sisters. And I desperately needed to hear it, and I'll tell you, it comforted me. And I went around singing the song in my heart and in my mind, the fact that God has the whole world in his hand and also that he has the little bitty baby in his hands that someone was big enough and powerful enough to be in control of this big, crazy old world that I was living in, and yet at the same time to be loving and tender enough to be concerned about a little baby. It met incredible needs inside of my heart. He's got the whole world in his hands, and thus we can take a deep breath as Christians and relax in the midst of it, He's got the itty-bitty baby in his hands, and so he has your life in his hands as well. And these truths were strong reassurance that anchored the hearts and the minds of the early church. And my prayer is that they would anchor our hearts as well in the age in which God has called us to love him and to serve him and to turn the world upside down for him. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Father, for your sovereignty. And thank you for your providence. We thank you that they are more than theological terms or subjects just to be academically explored. 
We thank you from this place this morning that they represents, represent realities concerning you and realities concerning our lives as your children as a result. We thank you, Father, that you are almighty. We don't doubt it. We're thankful that your almightiness and your sovereignty and your strength is something that we can rest in. And we thank you for your providence this morning, that you're not just almighty but keeping yourself at a distance, but you are actively involved in this world and in our lives. And Lord, I pray and we pray that those two great facts that were such an anchor to the early church, that were intended to bring perspective in all of the uncertainty and all of the craziness of the world that they were living in, both secular and religious, that they would accomplish the same thing in our hearts today to give us peace, Lord, to help us to realize and to process life and this world in a way that is accurate. Thank you, Lord, for your power that you have demonstrated time and time again in each one of our lives. And we thank you, Lord, for your activity in our lives. We thank you for the long history that each one of us has as your children and the fingerprints that you have left every step of the way. You don't always explain yourself, Lord, and we don't demand that of you today but you leave your fingerprints to let us remember and to realize that was you. You did that. Thank you, Lord, for your glorious interest in each one of our lives and your activity as you work not only human history, but our individual lives to a wonderful God-appointed end. And we thank you, Lord, in the name of the one who has made it possible, in Jesus' name, amen.